Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Today's episode is such a fun one because I am talking to somebody who decided to start a company with her husband when they found out that they were pregnant. They were looking up the cost of daycare and starting to figure out what it would take to become parents. And they said, you know what? We need to do something completely different than the thing we're doing now. Why don't we go ahead and start a company together? Michelle Hansen is a product person through and through. She's a technologist. And before she ran her own company, she worked in financial services and political consulting. She is the organizer of the meetup group DC Jobs To Be Done. And she loves helping other people with product development and customer discovery. She and I talk about all things product today, which includes how to do product development and user research and the process she uses to make decisions. We also talk about a project she worked on where she put together a rescue map for the Hurricane Harvey victims. Her company, geocode.io, is a geolocation mapping software. And what that does is it maps a location, a piece of data that has your location, and you can create a lot of useful mapping and geolocation information out of it. So when people were using things like Twitter to say, oh my gosh, I'm stuck, I need help, Like, come find me, this is where I need rescuing, She said over the weekend, she's going to share this whole story with us, but over the weekend, they were able to take the location data of the tweets and start to make a map to help the rescue committee help rescue people faster. Anyways, she tells a story way better than I'm telling it right now, and I cannot wait to welcome her to the show. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Life can be really unpredictable, especially when you're getting ready to add a baby to your life. The sponsor of this episode, Aeroflow Breast Pumps, is dedicated to making the hassle of getting your breast pump a little bit easier. Actually, a lot easier. Head to aeroflowbreastpumps.com startup to have them help you qualify for a free breast pump through insurance. And stick around because at the end of this episode, I'll walk you through how it works and tell you a little bit more of how Aeroflow breast pumps can save you so much time. All right, everybody, I'm so excited to welcome Michelle Hansen to the show. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, so glad to be here. I am too. And I've been reading your Medium articles and now I have so many questions for you. Let's start with. When you emailed me, you wrote to me and you told me that you and your husband decided to start a company when you found out you were pregnant and you realized how much childcare costs. Can you start there and tell us the story? Yes. So my husband and I got pregnant in 2012. And as we started planning for our future and whatnot, we started digging into things like exactly how much does daycare cost? We knew it would be expensive. It wasn't until we really started talking to people in our neighborhood and calling various centers and whatnot that we realized just how expensive daycare is. Daycare is more expensive than state college tuition in a majority of states, including the District of Columbia, where we lived. 
So infant daycare where we lived was about $2,000 a month for sort of a mid-range daycare center, which works out to $24,000 a year that people are expected to come up with out of pocket. I don't know how anyone does it. And so as we looked at that and we were two working professionals salaried and realizing that that would be difficult for us, immediately something kicked in for both of us that was like, we've talked about having side projects and doing work together. And now we have to do it because this is a huge expense. And as much as we can try to kill it at work and get a promotion, we're realistically never going to come up with another $24,000 through conventional means. And so that's when we really started talking seriously about starting a business together. I think that's so interesting because I think that so many people would assume that starting a business would be more risky or more expensive or you know all of these different concerns. So why was it that you you said, "Oh my gosh, starting a business is the thing." And then what did you do? I think we had a unique advantage in that we both work in technology. I do products, my husband is a developer. So it's easier in a certain sense for us to create a business online than it would be to, say, open up a restaurant in our neighborhood. You can start a business online with very limited capital costs, both upfront and an ongoing basis. The first product we launched was an app. It was an extension of an app that my husband had built in his native country of Denmark that showed you the opening hours of stores nearby. So if you needed milk at midnight or something like that, At the time, this is 2011, 2012, you couldn't just type into Google and it would know what your grocery store's hours are like it does now. The Google Places API wasn't as robust. Instead, you had to remember which grocery store was nearby and then go to their hours page. And it was kind of this process. And if you found yourself stranded in the middle of the night or you needed a coffee at 4.30 in the morning, there was no way you could just very quickly see what that was. And so he had built this app in Denmark I think it had actually been number one on their app store at one point, which we sort of amusingly, you know, realized, wait a minute, you know, percentage of the population and the number of downloads he has, like, it's actually this, you know, 2% of the population has downloaded his app. And we had talked about taking that to the US, but just hadn't found the time. And then all of a sudden, we're like, we have this expense coming in, this additional advertising revenue from this would be really helpful for us right now. We have to do this. And so we started, you know, translating the app and manually adding adding in all of the stores. Some of them we parsed automatically from the websites, but there was just really no API available for this. And so we started building it and we launched it 3 months after our daughter was born. It's funny, I often reference the email where we got our federal tax ID because we need that all the time. And we incorporated eight days after our daughter was born. And we were in the hospital for five days. I have no idea how I found the time for that. Wow. Wait, okay. So back me up. So you find out you're pregnant. You've had this idea for a business or some ideas for business. And then you kind of go into like, okay, we're gonna get serious about this. Did you immediately quit your job and start the business? Did you start it on the side? What did that all look like? It was absolutely a side project as a supplemental project. And I wouldn't say it was, you know, a straight sprint from that second when we recognized we needed more money and we had this way to do it. Like it was 
not nearly that organized or efficient. It took us a while to work on it and to find time to work on it. And it was somewhat meandering because we worked on other things at the same time. Like we went to a hackathon together when I was pregnant. I remember so clearly being at the hackathon and wearing really baggy clothes because I was the presenter and I didn't want anyone knowing that I was pregnant because I thought they would take us less seriously and I didn't want to drag down our team. It's amazing to me that I thought that way because I think these days if you went to a hackathon pregnant, like you would you know, be taking selfies of yourself and posting online and being like, yeah, I'm pregnant in a hackathon, what of it? Like this is what we do. But this was 2013, which is really not that long time ago. And, and I felt the need to hide it in a professional context. You know, the funny thing is, is we got much more focused once we had our daughter. There's this really amazing thing that happens when you have a child and you have no control over any of your time, and maybe you will get an hour to yourself a day. Maybe. Sometimes it feels like you get an hour to yourself a week. And so when you do have time to yourself, it becomes so much more important to make the most out of that time. So when she was first born, when we had time together, we didn't really spend time watching TV. We couldn't leave the house because she was sleeping. So we would just work on the app. And that is when we really focused and buckled down and launched it. We ended up launching another, I want to say we launched something else that fall, but it didn't do very well. So it's not very memorable. But that was when we we really focused. When we were pregnant, by contrast, we could spend an entire three-day weekend watching Game of Thrones with no consequences. And we planned to work on the app, but other things got in the way. But then once we had her and and we only had an hour a day, we really had to make the most of any time we weren't spending with her. Isn't that amazing? I've heard that from so many people about how it just makes you so much more focused in some ways because when you finally have that hour or whatever the moment is, you're like, I am going to get that thing done. Like I have to ship this to the editor. I have to send this to my... And it gets done. And you might be really bad at answering emails from everybody else and you might not have your house clean or whatever it is, but you get that one thing done, at least at least for some of us. Take me through this because what I find so fascinating about this is, first of all, you got pregnant and then pregnancy is pretty hard. Like You're growing an entirely new human being from scratch in your body. You get sick a lot of the time. How was pregnancy for you and how did you ramp up with a side hustle while also going through pregnancy? My pregnancy was, I think, in contrast from others that I've heard of, wasn't that bad. You know, I I did live on Cheez-Its for the first three months, and I couldn't smell any meat whatsoever, which we lived in an apartment at the time. And so on a Saturday morning, everyone's cooking bacon, and I couldn't stand the smell of bacon, and and that was tragic. I think, by and large, my pregnancy was relatively straightforward. So I was very lucky in that regard. It did go to almost 42 weeks, and then I was in labor for 45 hours. So it sort of caught up with me at the end. But by and large, I don't remember it having that much of an impact on me. I probably did take a lot of naps, but I think that's normal for being pregnant. I mean, the focus really didn't come in until we had her, which is... I think back on it and it surprises me how much we got done because I had a C-section after 45 hours of labor. 
So my body was a wreck, to put it mildly. I will say to anyone out there who is pregnant, even if you have a labor like mine, you will survive. We ended up as healthy mom, healthy baby at the end of the day. So I don't want to scare you. I mean, the first month was really difficult for me physically afterwards. I remember, for example, every time I fed her, my husband had to hold her off to one side because my stomach was so sore that I couldn't have anything touching my stomach, especially not a little baby on it. Yeah, we still managed to get it done. And we also used the fact, I think, that we were on maternity leave or parental leave to our advantage. So if she was napping when we were at home, I was either, you know, doing the laundry and trying to catch up on things, or I was adding more stores to our app. And my husband just found a great picture of him with her at 1776, which is a DC incubator, doing the first demo of our next product, which is now my full-time work with some friends there. And he's carrying her in her car seat and he was just off during the day meeting with them. And so here he is at the incubator with this little tiny two-month-old baby. Oh my God. Amazing. So you were still working. What did your work situation look like? Were you working from home or were you commuting to an office? What was that like? Yeah, I was commuting to an office. When we were pregnant and she was born, we lived about a mile from work and we lived in DC. So we walked to and from work most days. We did drive sometimes when we were really lazy. I will admit that. But mostly we would just walk to work. And I found that having a child also made me so much more efficient at work. I knew I had to pump at 10 and 12 and 2 and I had to leave at 4. I only had so much time to get things done. Whereas before I still managed a high workload and worked off hours fairly often, I really became so much more efficient because I had to be. Because I knew when I got home, I had to be 100% on when I got home. And I couldn't be replying to emails. I couldn't work until six if things were taking a little longer. I had to leave at five because daycare would close at 5.30 and otherwise I would get a fine and all of those sorts of things. Oh, it's real. I, I didn't even realize. I'm, and I'm chatting with a friend of mine right now who's about to have a kid. And I was like, get ready. Like daycare charges you a dollar a minute for every minute that you're late. And like once you're 15 minutes late, it's just there's just no knowledge of this until you are in it. So I think something you're saying that's so interesting and one of the things that you've written about, I'm going to read something you wrote because I liked it so much. You said, in the tech community, there's a stereotype unfairly magnified by the media that the ideal entrepreneur is young, unattached, capable of working 20-hour days for months or years on end. And what I love about this is in your essay, you boil it down to the essence, which is this idea that entrepreneurs can only be successful if they don't have any distractions. And you kind of call BS on that. You say, wait, stop. It's not true that you can only be an entrepreneur if you're super focused and don't have any distractions. In fact, those can be benefits. And there's not just one, but two examples of you doing this. The first is starting a business while pregnant and as a parent. But the second is what so many people do, which is start a business as a side hustle right? Like you have a big old job that can be a quote distraction. And yet that's how so many entrepreneurship stories start. So I think that's so amazing. I want to ask you, so you are starting these side projects, you're testing them out, you're growing them. When do they become a business? 
in as much as like, when did you finally leave your full-time gig and decide to work on this exclusively? I didn't leave my full-time job until October of last year. And so it's only been about three months for me working on this full-time. So the business we have now that I'm working on, the app has long since gone away. The Google Places API has stepped in and filled the role that, that we hoped it would. But there was another business we found in that. And so we had this app and it had about 5,000 stores in it. And in order to display a map online, you need to have the latitude and longitude coordinates of those addresses. So when you type an address into Google, it translates that into latitude and longitude and then displays the map to you. So we needed to add new stores and refresh addresses and we needed the latitude and longitude. The problem was at the time, your best option was the Google Maps API and you could get 2,500 addresses free per day. Or you could sign up for a yearly enterprise contract for a hundred or two hundred thousand a day for some tens of thousands of dollars. There was nothing in between, and so if you needed five thousand, you were above that twenty five hundred, but nowhere near the enterprise tier. And so we realized that there was this huge middle of the market that was not being served at all. My husband found a way to create his own geocoder that we used for the app. And then as we talked to our friends who were developers and in the space about it, we realized they had the same problem. And we're like, well, we should just release this geocoder as another product and let people pay for whatever they need to beyond 2,500. And this is something that'll be used by other freelance developers. This is mostly just something that we need ourselves and we're going to price it very cheaply so that our friends and other people like us can just use this and get on with their projects and not have to deal with all these restrictions and pricing issues. And so we launched that in January of 2014. And almost from the outset, it became clear to us that that was a bigger opportunity. We launched it before Product Hunt kind of became a thing. And so being front page of Hacker News was our huge dream that we had for it. And it ended up being on the front page for almost a full day, which was absolutely insane. I mean, we had a thousand users very quickly, most of them not paying, but still users nonetheless, and getting the word out there. And so it was very clear to us that this was a problem that people wanted solved. And from that first month, it was cash flow positive. It wasn't a lot of cash, but it was paying for its servers. And I should also note that we had an advantage here, having dabbled in projects before. My husband had participated in a hackathon and as part of that had gotten, I think, you know, $1,000 in AWS credits, which we were able to host the app on for a while and various other things that, so by the time that we launched Geocodio, we already had a little bit of money in the bank account to pay for, I think it was $15 in DigitalOcean servers that month for it. Interesting. Okay. So you got pregnant in 2012. And had your kid in 2012? We got pregnant in December of 2012, mm-hmm. and she was born in August of 2013. We launched the app, Open Nearby, in November of 2013, and that went reasonably well. We had a little bit of local press coverage. RIP DCist, they were one of the big outlets that covered us, and then launched Geocodio in January of 2014. 
So something I think that's so interesting about this and really relevant for everybody listening is is so often you find that an entrepreneurial success story is not necessarily the first thing that somebody tried. You know, they went out and they tried this on the side or they tried that on the side. And then, oh, by the way, I needed to make this thing to help me build what I thought I was making. And it turned out this side project is actually the more relevant project. I think that's so incredible and worth kind of pausing for a second and looking at because now you have Geocodio. So that's 2014 and we're in 2018. And you said three months ago, you started working on this company full time. So what was that like? You have this company, Geocodio, it's starting to go, but you're still working on it on the side. How did it grow? What happened next? It grew organically. On the one hand, we're very lucky that we haven't really had to run much in the way of ads. And on the other hand, I think it's, you know, we created a product that people needed to a certain extent that does a lot of that job for us. And so it's been largely a, a very small snowball of, you know, our revenue graph is a little bit jumpy at points, but mostly it's just, you know, a fairly smooth upward line. It wasn't like we all of a sudden had tons of revenue. It was just day in, day out, an hour or two hours of work every night for four years led to the point where we're at now. I never predicted that it would become my full-time job. I never planned for that. I will freely admit that I am not a GIST person, which is funny. I, I tell people this and they're like, I think you can call yourself a GIST person. You run a GIST company. We started with one business. You know, We solved a problem for ourselves. In that, we realized there was another problem we had. And we realized that more people had that problem than the initial problem that we had had. And so it just kind of built as we are gathering steam. And you know, I'll say that this is the fourth company that I've started in my life. I started my first one at 19 with friends in college and another one in college as well. This is the first one that's really made any money and really gotten to the point of being a full-time business. In my experience, it doesn't happen on the first try. It might not happen on the second try. It might not happen on the third try. And, you know, we'll see where this takes us and what else it might lead us to Mm. in the future. Oh, that's so interesting. So when did you decide to switch to make this your full-time gig? Like, what was the impetus or what were the signs where you said, okay, I'm going for it? For a while, we had started to have trouble balancing the workload. So we would have customers asking us questions during the workday and wanting to have calls with us and you know, we both, you know, had full-time jobs. My husband still has a full-time job that he very much enjoys. But it was difficult for us to manage that. And if a customer wanted to have a call, I could only have a call with them, you know, after hours, which really only worked if they're on the West Coast, because then I could schedule it at 6 p.m. Eastern. And, you know, it worked on their schedule. And we would get home from work every night and, you know, do dinner and bath time and that whole routine. And then if we were lucky, 7.30, we could start working some nights, not until 9 or 9.30. And then it was just a glut of intercom messages to respond to and customers to get back to and just praying that people would be understanding with us and not expect a reply immediately. We're very conscientious about not doing side project work while we were at work during the day because this business was a side project. It was not meant to replace our jobs and we wanted to be committed to our jobs 
during the day and at night too. I mean, so very often I would be coming home working on my daytime work and on my side project work. And it was just, you know, a, a negotiation of I would take our daughter out to the grocery store and to her art class on Saturday mornings. And we'd be gone for about three or four hours, which would let my husband work on stuff that he needed to get done on the side project. Or, you know, every couple of Saturdays, he would take her off. They would often go to the electronics store and <laughs> and then I would do accounting. And that's how I would spend my Saturday afternoon. And it was just balancing off of one another and hoping for early bedtimes, basically. So I have a question about, it's kind of personal related to this, actually. For me, my side hustle was always writing. So I would get home from work. I worked in architecture for a long time. I would get home from work, and then I would write my blog. And I loved it. It was just so fun for me. And one of the things you touched on was constraints. Like if you only have an hour at night, you get really good at writing really fast in an hour. And that's the only time I had to write. But when I switched to finally writing full time and having it be part of the business that I run, I always struggled with it because I was used to writing at night. Like I'd conditioned myself to only work at this certain specific time. What for you has changed in terms of becoming a full time product runner, business owner in this company and working during the day instead? Have there been any shifts in like your mental outlook or in the way that you show up to work? Absolutely. The biggest difference has been that my husband is, he has a full-time job and we work on this together. He gets home from work and does dinner and everything and he has things he needs to work on. And so if there are things that I've been working on during the day where, you know, a customer reported a bug or there's a new feature we want to add and I've done as much as I can on my side of things, he needs to work on it at night, but I've been working all day and I've been working on this all day. And at night I want to relax and he needs to work. And so that's been a definitely a push and pull for us the past couple of months, because if you know I go downstairs to watch TV, he wants to come with me and he wants to spend time with me. If I want to go to bed early, he has to you know stay up late working. I think last night he was up until you know, 11 or midnight or so, I passed out at like 8.30, I'll admit. I don't feel like I'm being fair to him in doing that. And so I've started like, okay, well, if I want some time to relax during the day, you know, let's say before this, three times a week, I would have carved out time to watch Netflix, for example, or to read a book. So like, okay, I will give myself a longer lunch break today. And I will read a book that I'm reading during the day today. So that later on tonight, I'm not feeling like I need a break. But of course, I'm doing that and he's still not getting a break unless we both just completely cave and go watch The Crown. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that's been a big change. The other thing that I expected and didn't know how to deal with and still don't know how to deal with is the loneliness of it. I'm in my house all day with my wonderful dog. and. I really miss talking to people. And, you know, I never thought I was extremely extroverted. I knew I was extroverted. I never would find myself, you know, starving for social interaction. Yet, you know, we just got back from our Christmas vacation and I'm sitting in the car on our way home and kind of thinking about what I'm going to dive into and, you know, having the thought of, oh, like nobody's going to ask me how my trip was. And that 
made me a little bit sad because someone asks you how it was and you hear about theirs and you learn something new and just that like water cooler chat that I, I never really thought I enjoyed at all is something I just missed. And then that level of bouncing ideas off of someone and my husband and I bounce things off each other all the time, though it's generally more in a, a rubber duck type of scenario where we're struggling with a domain specific problem and we're just kind of talking it out to the other one. And through the process of asking each other questions, we figure it out ourselves, but not having other you know, product people to bounce something off of that I'm thinking about. I really miss the social aspect of working at a company. Mm -hmm. And I have tried to create that myself in various fits and starts. Several times a week, I just go hang out in Whole Foods in the cafeteria (laughs) just so I can be around other people and hear other people. I started a meetup for people in the DC area who are founders or work remotely or what have you. I called it the workup where we go to Whole Foods and sit and work together for two hours. And I've had a couple of those so far and people came to two out of three of them. So maybe I'll continue with that. The community aspect and bouncing ideas off of people and just basic connection is something I'm, I'm really missing. I'm glad that you're sharing this. It makes me not happy, right? That's not the right word because I don't want to be happy at somebody's misery. That sounds terrible as I say it out loud. But I'm just really glad and thankful that you're sharing it because I think it's something that's so overlooked in entrepreneurship. We talk about how you can have freedom and you know manage your own day and run your own schedule. And the reality is the first two or three years can be really lonely and really isolating. And places like Y Combinator, you know, incubators, recommend slash don't accept people that don't have co-founders for a reason. And it's because it can be so intensely lonely and you get like stuck inside of your own thoughts. In one of the other interviews we did on this show with Maura Ahrens-Mealy, she talks about her strategy of making 10 touches a week. So she reaches out to 10 people every week because that's about how many people you'd run into if you were part of a small team or you're at a company. And I'm raising my hand. I'm right there with you. It's one of the harder parts of working from home is like making sure you have enough contact with other humans where you're like, I need to actually verbalize this idea. Speaking of which, you said rubber ducking. What does that mean? What does that mean for people who don't know? So it's kind of an old fashioned concept in software. And it's just the, the idea that a programmer would keep a rubber duck on their desk to talk to when they have a problem. And so if they're encountering a problem and they don't know how to solve it, The idea is that in the process of talking to the rubber duck, they will realize the solution themselves. And I say that my husband and I do this often where, you know, I'll ask him what he's trying to solve. And I will purposefully ask very, very basic questions, questions that are far below my my level of understanding on the topic, just to help him figure it out, because I'm not going to figure it out. But if I ask him the right questions, he'll figure it out. And he does the same for me when I'm thinking through user experience or pricing or all those sorts of things. And it's a really helpful exercise. I love it. And it's so useful. Okay, so one of the things you told me before this interview was that you are primarily a product person. I think for people in kind of the startup world, they know what that means. But for people who don't know what that means, like what does it mean to be primarily a product person? Can you first start there? To me, it means that I focus on the solution that is being delivered to people and creating a solution that solves a problem for them that is, in the words of Marty Kagan, who is a 
respected product thinker. I want to say he used to work at AOL in the 90s and now has his own consulting company. A product needs to be valuable, which means it solves a problem for someone. Usable, they can use it and it's not confusing to them and it makes sense to them. And feasible, it needs to be technologically possible. And so given an opportunity or a market need or a set of resources, determining with that underlying information is usable, feasible, and valuable to someone, and then creating that into a solution. Mm. Wow. So how does that influence what you do on the day-to-day? So I take a very user-focused perspective on things. One nice thing about this being a side project was for so long was that we could always err on the side of making the decision that was the best for the user and not necessarily the best for revenue, which as a product person made me really happy. And even though I'm full-time, that's still how we're making our decisions. I spend a lot of time talking to users and just building an understanding of the market and what they need and what else they are doing and looking at things from the perspective of what are people trying to solve overall. So there's this one framework that I use called jobs to be done, which says someone hires a product to get a job done. And you do various activities in pursuit of that job. So with geocoding, for example, no one just wants latitude and longitude coordinates. Like very rarely do you have this list of addresses and you just want the coordinates just to have them. That's not that's not really how it works. <laughs> Even if you're going to create a piece of art with the coordinates on it, you're going to do something else with that. You're going to put them on some canvas. You're going to sell it. Like That's part of this whole process that you're going through, and you're trying to create something for someone else or for yourself. So for example, if you're trying to send a mailing to potential customers, you want to get the biggest bang for your buck out of your marketing spend. And so let's say you have a list of your existing customers or maybe people who are prospective customers and you have a list of all of your stores that are in the area to them and you want to send them a mailing and tells them which stores are closest to them so that they can go and go buy your stuff so you can eventually have higher revenue and have more customers. This is the goal you're driving towards. So in order to do that, you would need to geocode those addresses and then determine the radius of where those people live around them and then pinpoint the mailings based on that. And so I spent a lot of time talking to customers. What is this full process you're doing? What are the other pieces of data that you're looking at? For example, you might be layering in demographic information from the census on the income of a particular neighborhood because you want to target neighborhoods with desirable income characteristics for your product or service. So there are other steps in this process that you're going through often they're very frustrating for people and they just want to get to that point of being able to tell their boss like yes I sent out the direct mail it's all good and then getting to that point 6 months later when their boss is congratulating them for increasing sales 20% with this highly targeted mailing they did it's not just about the service i'm providing it's about what they're trying to accomplish so doing lots of jobs to be done interviews with people where i'm talking to them about what is the overall goal they're trying to accomplish? What is standing in their way? And you know, what have they already tried? Those are some of the key questions that I'm asking someone to figure out not only what is the product doing for them now, but what are other things that are going to do? What are other things that they're struggling with that they really didn't wish were 
that much of a pain that maybe we could integrate into our product to make the experience much better for the user and more efficient for them and also increase our revenue by making the product more useful. Hmm. I think that's such a helpful framework for people as a user, right? Like we use things all the time. We use a computer, we use a cell phone. You know, I pick up my cell phone and that framework of what is the job that's going to be done? Well, maybe it's call my mother, right? Like that thing has a job that I need it to perform. And if it can't connect to the Wi-Fi or the cellular signal or whatever gets in the way, my job isn't getting done, right? The phone isn't doing what I need it to do. Or we don't use the phone for phone purposes much anymore. There's so many other jobs that it can do. That's such a great way of framing it, especially for people who don't know much about product and user research. The cool thing about it is that jobs exist independent of products and time. So the job you were just describing, I think the underlying job is connection with your mother and it's talking to her. And there are many different ways you could accomplish that job. You could use your cell phone. You could use a landline phone. You could get on a plane and go talk to her in person. You could, well, I don't think you can send telegrams anymore. I think Western (laughs) Union finally shut that down a few years ago. But there are many other different products that you could hire to get that job done. You know, these days on a Saturday night, you might hire Netflix to get the job done of entertaining you in your leisure time. 200 years ago, you might have hired a deck of cards. But fundamentally, that job you have of maybe spending time with people you enjoy spending time with on a weekend in the confines of a house. That job is just getting done by these different products. And you're doing different activities to get that job done. But it's the same core need that you have. And so when I'm thinking about it with my customers, oftentimes the fundamental job is increase my revenue so that I can have you know a better standing at my company or my company can have more success or what have you. But it's really, it comes down to that. But then what are all those different activities that people are doing in pursuit of that job are incredibly varied. Mm. And until you get on the phone with them and you talk to them and you see what are the steps that they're taking and what is the bigger story behind it, you can't really understand the context of what your product does, is what you're saying. Right, right. And so those interviews are a crucial window into understanding how people use your product. And very rarely do I get off of a call with someone and they have a feature request and we go build it right away. It's often very much a process of, okay, we've heard this insight from this person that they're doing this process. And so this additional data point we could provide or this type of data would be very useful to them. Let's do some surveying. Let's look at other customer insights that we've heard from people. Let's look at broader market trends. Who else is providing this? How are they charging for it? Does it make sense for us? But the interviews are really that first key piece of the process, because without the interview, you don't know what questions to ask of your data. And you don't know what questions to ask of the market in general, and your data can lead you astray without that lens. Mm. Okay, so I have like some really geeky questions about this. First about the user research. Can you talk us through the process? Who do you contact? How do you get on the phone with them? How many do you do every week? How long are they? Can you do my, you could see me because we're on video right now and I'm like grinning about all these questions for people listening. But like, go into it. I'd love to know. Yeah. And I, I hope you can see that I'm grinning too um, <laughs> because me and some friends started a jobs to be done meetup in the DC area where we talk about all of these things. And so I absolutely love this. So when you're talking to users, so Jason Freed of Basecamp says that there are only two people you should ever listen to. Someone who has recently purchased your product 
and someone who has recently fired your product. So generally when I'm doing these interviews in Intercom, I have a trigger set up that sends an email out to people who have added a credit card within the past seven days. So it'll say if they added a credit card seven days ago, they will get this email that says, hey, you know, I'm Michelle from Geocodia. I'm one of the founders. I noticed you've used our product recently. I just wanted to hear from you about why you need geocoding in the first place and what you're using it to accomplish and if there's anything we could do better and, and just set up a time for you know a 15 or 20 minute call with them. If any of our users are listening, I've totally dispelled the magic behind that. I'm sorry, it is an automated email. Whoever friend you and who wants to do this, Intercom is a fantastic tool. And also their library of blog posts on product and user research and all of those related things is so incredibly valuable to me. And I find myself referencing their blog posts all the time. Totally. Um, and wait, for listeners, I'll see if I can find the sound and add it to the show. But it's that little sound, the like blurp. It's like a burp, like right when you open a website. And it's the, like a little chat bubble. Yeah, on the bottom right, like, usually. And they'll say like, hey, like I'm Jake from so-and-so app. Like, let me know if you have any questions. Right. I, actually, I was just using a video conferencing app earlier today for the first time. And it literally said, hi, I'm Jake. Like, let me know. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there are different chat providers, but it's one of the big ones. And so it's an automated email that goes out to people who have recently made a purchase, asking them for feedback. And if you have built a product that is useful for your users, generally I have found that you will get people who will reply to you and be generous with their time with you and are more than willing to get on the phone and tell you all about what they're working on and what they're trying to do I find that very often people don't really have a lot of people to talk to about their work outside of their company or even within their company because they might be the only person that's doing their specific function. And to have someone who is enthusiastically wanting to just listen to them and wanting to listen to what they think could be better and is more exciting is an exciting opportunity for them. And it's such a valuable experience for me. It's a too. gift. And, it's a gift yeah. to give people so, too. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I do on an ongoing basis and try to carve out time one to two a day on average. And sometimes people just want to send you a long email. Sometimes they want to send you a short email. Sometimes they don't reply at all. That's fine. Sometimes you have a two hour long conversation. It's really exciting. And I just love hearing about the work people are doing and knowing that a product I've helped create has made their life better is so gratifying for me. And that's the thing that I get the most satisfaction out of is knowing that I have made someone else more efficient and I have made them less frustrated and I have made them want to throw their computer out the window fewer times a day. You know, I mean, I studied econ in college and I just find efficiency to be this really beautiful thing. And so if I can do anything to bring more efficiency to the world, I am overjoyed. And doing the interviews not only gives me more ideas about things to build, but solidifies my commitment to the work we're doing and the importance of it. So I think there's a, a real world application of what you've built that's I want to make sure that we touch on in this interview. When Hurricane Harvey hit, you and your husband put together a real-time practical application of geocoding. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So when Harvey hit, we noticed that 
people were tweeting out their full addresses, which people never do. And this is because, I mean, all of the phone lines were down. People couldn't get through to 911. You know, there are issues with the cell towers and Twitter was the only way. So out of desperation, they were tweeting their addresses. And I remember starting to see this on the Friday night of when Harvey was starting and just being like, wow, this is really awful. And then you're seeing it like just increasing into Saturday and this is just awful. But it didn't really occur to me that we could do anything about it. I mean, people are violating these, these social conventions that you never post your address and phone number on the internet. And yet here they are just tweeting it out into a void at their local TV station or a politician, hoping that somebody is going to see it and rescue them or the address of their elderly relative who needs to be rescued. That like the desperation was unlike anything I have personally ever witnessed. And I don't know if I can say I was a personal witness to it because I was just watching it on Twitter, but I was just like, I have never watched a tragedy unfold like that in real time and just seeing it just more and more and more of it and watched it into Sunday. And, you know, was of course talking about this with friends and, you know, in a couple of times I would just start crying at the level of need. And, you know, we were like, oh, you know, maybe we could build a map that pulled this and, and they're like, um, you know, I don't know, like, you know, it's difficult. Like people often don't put their full location on Twitter. So you have the ability to, but like the data is really tough to work with. And we're like, maybe, but we weren't really doing anything about it. I, you know, I had been glued to my phone all weekend and glued to Twitter. And the only break we took was, I think it was to watch like the Game of Thrones finale or something was going on that Sunday night. And I mentioned that only because I was off of my phone for the first time all weekend for, God, what was it, like an hour and a half or something. And then so I get back to my phone and I pull up Twitter and it's just constant. Like everything I'm seeing is people tweeting out their addresses. I just break down and I'm texting with a good friend of mine and we're just talking about how awful it is and how we wish we could do something. And then I kind of mention like, oh, you know, we thought we might be able to make a map, but I don't even know if it would be helpful. And he's like, just literally just do it. Just do whatever you can. If you think you can do something, you have to do it. And at that point, I was like, okay, you know what, actually, maybe they've got an address and they've either got a zip code or they've got a city, they don't have a state with it. But you know, we can complete that because we have the geocoding app, we can do address completion. And then years ago, we had worked on a project together at work that helped voting election officials find people who were having trouble at the polls, whether it was a long line or, or things like that, and we're tweeting about it. And so we had built a social media listening dashboard that was all location-based based on partial address information. And so we're like, wait a minute. So we actually, we know how to do the address side of this and complete these addresses and can build an algorithm that would be able to complete those addresses. And then at the same time, we know how to work with the Twitter API. Oh, and then as it turns out, I think there are some Red Cross people who used us in some of their disaster mapping training. So we've got addresses of people who volunteered at the Red Cross. So maybe I can do a database poll of anybody who's ever worked at the Red Cross and maybe they can get us in touch with somebody who can get us in touch with somebody who can get this in the hands of somebody who has a boat and wants to go rescue people. And so this all happened really fast. Like I want to say from the conversation that I had with a friend of mine where I decided, yeah, okay, I just, we have to do this. It was probably 1030 at night and it was 1.30 in the morning. We finally got the app running. And so it was just pulling all of the tweets and displaying them on a map. And then about 2 a.m. the email went out. 
I think I sent it out to anyone with a Red Cross email address and anyone who had an email address that indicated Texas in some way. It was everything from Texas newspapers to just have, if it had the letters TX or Texas in it somewhere. And I was like, we can get this in the hands of somebody. We are not the people who are going to go down there and get in a boat as much as we want to. We are not trained in water rescue. This would be a bad idea for everyone involved. Many, many and, states away. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're like, you know, this, this is what we can do. And maybe it'll help somebody. So we'll just do it. And so we sent that out. And I think I had a call with someone who does disaster response at the Red Cross that day around noon. And they were getting it in the hands of people. Um, I can't say for certain whether anyone was rescued because of what we built. I don't know that for sure. But we do know that some organization used it. So the Red Cross used it in their recovery efforts. We ended up having a call with their national office and gave them free use of our service for whatever they need. And they used it for disaster response to map out the areas that were the hardest hit after the fact in terms of resources. There was also an organization that reached out to us called Project Rubicon, which was organizing veterans with boats to go rescue people. And I also heard from people whose family were impacted by it. So a very good friend of mine, his grandmother lived in Houston and in a heavily flooded area. And I want to say on Tuesday, the day after, he texted me and was like, I saw her address on your map. And that gave me hope that somebody was going to go rescue her and the other people in her nursing home because no one has been able to get in touch with her. It was such a crazy thing. And we were also working with other sort of grassroots mappers who were trying to get all of these tweets out of Twitter. And, and there were several other groups had built maps. I want to say one of them now is called Crowd Rescue HQ, I believe they're called now. They also worked on Maria as well. It was just a really unique thing where we had a product that was useful and we had skills that were useful. They married in a unique way and we were able to help a little bit, I think, I hope. I don't know for certain. Right. And even that, like, we would love to have a bow to tie up the end of the story, right? That would be the pretty picture. But the truth is, we don't always know how something happens. What I think is really remarkable about this story, you've written about it on Medium, and I'll add it to the show notes so people can read. What I think is so compelling and so interesting here is like, you had a company where you're the expert at putting together maps of people's locations. Like, You have all this technical capability, and you've done this thing before. And then all of a sudden, there's a storm. And people are literally shouting via Twitter their most private information, their addresses, because they're in such dire straits and they need help and they need to be rescued. And you had this moment. You said, well, I could make a map. Would that be useful? I don't know. And you ask a friend of yours. And your friend writes back, I don't mean to be dramatic, but people are dying in their attics. Do literally whatever. And it's just a reminder that like, when we are on a couch in a house far, far away from a problem and it feels like we can't do something, to go ahead and do it, like to just try to see what happens. And that's what I think the genius of this story is here. It's like you said, okay, thanks, friends. Let's just try. Let's see if this is useful. That's the part that really kind of struck me and made me feel like, exactly, this is why we try to make things. Like This is why we're parents. This is why we're entrepreneurs. We're trying out. We don't know if it's going to work. In fact, we may never know if it works. I'm not going to ever know if my parenting was the perfect thing that got my son to do whatever, right? Like We're not going to get that feedback. Maybe I'll like accidentally take too much credit, you know? 
the point is, is that we're like in there choosing to do it. And you never know where it's going to lead either. I never would have predicted from that first app we built that we would have ended up launching a geocoding company. And I never would have predicted that we would have ended up trying to help out with a natural disaster. I just never would have predicted that. And, you know, there's this concept of sort of practical humility of always being open to the idea that you don't know what the answer is. And it's okay to not know what the answer is. And it's okay to just try something and see where it goes and see where it sticks. And it doesn't have to be perfect when you launch it into the world. It's never going to be perfect. It's always going to be a work in progress. And it's a matter of listening to people and trying things out and saying, okay, well, maybe we can go in this direction. And maybe that would be useful. And then you just sort of, you know, work to open as many doors as you can. And then you walk through the ones that open and, and see what happens next. You know, I mean, with our daughter, we try to take that approach as well. So she goes to a Montessori school. And so we're trying to raise her to be very independent. You know, I heard someone say once that you're not in the business of raising a child, you're in the business of raising an adult. And as I think about our goals for parenting, you know, it would be fantastic if she went to a great school or, you know, got a fantastic job and was very happy. But like, you know, really like our goal here is a successful functioning adult. I will take it as a given that she will probably end up on a therapist couch at 25 about something in her childhood. That is completely acceptable to me because that means she's not out drinking or doing drugs or having destructive relationships with people as a result of that, right? Like if she is able to have functioning relationships with people and sustain herself and have a job that she can hold down and she enjoys and is able to bring whatever her talents end up being into the world, that's what I'm going for. They will probably be very different things than I would have pictured or she ever pictured. I certainly, as a child, I never pictured I would be running a SaaS business. I think that's because software as a service didn't exist when I was a child. I believe if I would always say that I either wanted to be president or interior designer. I do not want to be either of those things, though I did work in politics and very much love furniture. I would never want a job in either of those two things. And so, I mean, life is inherently unpredictable and it's just a matter of using whatever skills you have to try to make them useful. Michelle, I've learned so much from you by getting to talk to you this past hour. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise and your perspective and being honest about it all. It's been a real pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, where can people find you if they want to find out more about your company or follow you on Twitter? Oh, so you can find me on Twitter and Medium at MJW Hansen. And that's Hansen with an E-N. And so if you think of the band Hansen, I believe they are O-Ns. We are E-Ns, not H-A-N-S-O-N-E, as someone asked me once for how to spell it. But anyway, so MJW Hansen. And then... Geocodio is at, it's actually geocod.io, like the fish. That domain works out better. So G-E-O-C-O-D dot I-O. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes so people can get the right spelling of your name on Twitter and Medium. <laughs> and I'll also link up all the articles that I referenced and your company. All right, everyone. 
Just a reminder that if you want to learn more about the mastermind we're putting together for Startup Pregnant, it's an amazing community support space for women to connect with each other about entrepreneurship and parenting. We're doing the beta round this summer, so you can find out a lot more about the program over on our website, startuppregnant.com slash mastermind. Get your name on the list so that I can send you information about it because we're putting together a small pilot group for a group of women this summer. We would love to have you there. I promised at the beginning of the episode to tell you a little bit more about the pumping journey and about how Aeroflow Breast Pumps works. They are the sponsor of this episode. So for all of you breastfeeding and pumping mamas, here is the info that you wanted. Aeroflow Breast Pumps makes the process of getting a breast pump covered through your insurance as easy as possible. They have dedicated and informed breast pump specialists to help you navigate insurance by taking care of the paperwork, the phone calls, and the prescription requests so that you can take it easy. They're available by phone, text, or email to answer any questions you have during this exciting time in your life. One of the trickiest things is the timing of everything. A lot of insurance plans only allow you to get a pump within 30 days of your due date. Let me tell you, figuring out when that baby is going to arrive and then getting everything done within these exact timeframes can be really hard. They take care of everything, including contacting your physician for a prescription, recommending the best breast pump options for you and your lifestyle, billing and processing those insurance claims, and shipping the breast pump to your door free of charge. The entire process is totally free. So if you want to work with them to get your breast pump, go to aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash startup, and they will get you started right away. Thanks for being a sponsor of Working Pumping Mamas, Aeroflow Breast Pumps. Thank you so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit it home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on StartupPregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode. 